it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. That's exciting. December 20-something. It's that magical time of year. And we're glad to have you here on The Guy Benson Show every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. Everything you need right there. Other options for the podcast include FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor and someone who is admittedly quite excited that it's almost Christmas. My parents arrive in town this evening, siblings a few days later, putting some finishing touches on Christmas shopping and preparations. But we are here for you for these three hours, and that is the task at hand. And we are glad that you are joining us as always. Here's our lineup for the show today. Juan Williams, our colleague and friend, will be here. Maybe talk some politics, maybe some more personal stuff as well as we get close to the Christmas holiday. That's later this hour. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, he will be here on the Supreme Court and Title 42, the temporary ruling that they issued yesterday, the January 6th committee and their actions. What does Andy think of that? If we have time, we'll get to some other topics as well. In our final hour, Dave Rubin of The Rubin Report, he's going to be here. It's been almost exactly a year since he moved his family from California to Florida, like a lot of other people. How's that gone for him? We'll ask him on that subject and other subjects. A bunch of questions. Looking forward to that conversation with Dave in our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern. I want to begin today's show very close to home for me. As you know, this show originates, or maybe you don't if you're new, especially if you're new, we're glad that you're here. This show originates in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Our Tony Snow studio is at the Fox News Bureau right on Capitol Hill. I mean, steps from the Senate side, steps from Union Station. I live in this area. I have for about a dozen years now. And the precipitous decline when it comes to public safety is absolutely noticeable. We've talked about this now for quite some time, really dating back, I would say, to the pandemic, the unrest in 2020, the riots over the summer. D.C., of course, saw some of that, quite a lot of it at times. And some cynics who have tried to pretend like the crime wave in major cities is just not really a true phenomenon, maybe just a figment of conservatives' imagination or a Fox News story. Some of those people, we have spent a lot of time refuting them statistically, also giving anecdotes that back up these statistics. And in response to the claim that after the midterm elections, we would stop talking about crime because it was just an invention 
for political reasons, was never going to be true. We'll stop talking about the crime problem when the crime problem subsides. And in so many places around the country, it is not subsiding. Therefore, it is still a very big story. We opened yesterday's show with the lawlessness at the border. Today's show with the lawlessness in our nation's capital. We told you recently about how Starbucks closed a bunch of locations in major cities, all blue cities, I will point out. Blue jurisdictions across the country, a bunch in California, one here in D.C. That happened just a few months ago. In D.C., it was the one inside Union Station where commuters or people hopping on the train to New York or wherever used to be able to go get a cup of Starbucks. Now they can. It was closed not because it was not profitable, but because it was not safe. That's the reason that Starbucks announced those closures, just like some of these big drugstore chains like CVS and Walgreens have been closing locations in California, for example, L.A., San Francisco, public safety problems, looting, shoplifting, rampant stuff like that. In Philadelphia, home to another one of these basically non-prosecutors, soft on crime, if not pro-criminal prosecutors, bankrolled by George Soros. In Philly, Wawa, a convenience store, very popular, almost like a little cult religion down in Pennsylvania or up in Pennsylvania, and that neck of the woods, they've been closing Wawa locations in Philly because of crime. If you walk through Union Station here in D.C. now, so much of it is just abandoned and empty, just a ghost town. Like you could just sort of like hear the wind blowing through. Tumbleweed. Just bouncing along the ground. I'm sort of exaggerating a little bit, but not in terms of the number of stores and storefronts that are shuttered and closed down. Because of public safety, homelessness, drugs, mental illness, crime, assault, shooting, stabbings. I mean, it is a problem. Now, you can look at some of the crime stats in D.C., for example, just focusing here. But you can project this onto any number of places from Chicago to Seattle to a number of major cities in California, in the interior of the country. We're seeing similar things playing out a lot of places, unfortunately. But you can look at some of the crime stats specifically in D.C. Crime overall, violent crime is definitely elevated compared to where it was even just a few years ago across the board. Some specific stats are down. I think D.C. murders are down a little bit in 22 compared to 21. But robbery and carjacking up. City Council in D.C. just voted, as we've talked about here, to reduce criminal penalties for carjacking, which too often become violent and get people hurt or killed. There has been a rash of carjackings and robberies in D.C. Now, I bring all of this up because here's another example of this overall phenomenon. McDonald's has closed its location in Chinatown, right downtown in D.C. If you know D.C. at all, if you've ever been to a sporting event or a concert or anything at the arena where the Wizards play, where the Capitals play, it is the center of like indoor sports in D.C. Tons of concerts there. Used to be the Verizon Center, now it's Capital One Arena. Right there 
in Chinatown, but the 7th, what is it, 7th is right there. A ton of nice restaurants. That area has gotten scarier and scarier. There's a McDonald's. Unless I'm mistaken, it's like literally attached to the arena. It is right there. This is not some far-flung area. This isn't a dangerous neighborhood that's been tough for years like Anacostia. This is a McDonald's attached to the sports arena in the heart of the capital city of the United States of America. That McDonald's has now closed down. Had a lot of foot traffic and a lot of business. Maybe you've been there if you live in D.C. Had a few too many beers at the game or the concert afterwards. You want a McDouble or something. You swing by. Well, it's not an option anymore. They've pulled down the McDonald's sign, and it's gone because there have been so many problems there. I read a number of the local accounts about this, about the closing of the uh, the McDonald's on 7th Street Northwest. And so many people have talked about what they've just witnessed themselves there. Drug deals constantly. Inside the McDonald's, just outside the McDonald's, just almost like open drug deals. So obvious that they weren't even really scared about getting caught. It was just happening like it was an open-air drug market. The front door being shattered, the glass being shattered on a somewhat regular basis. Assaults, stabbings and shootings in the area. They'd have security in there, but the people behind the counter really couldn't do anything. They were probably in fear of their own safety. Just a, a... constant mess that's become normal there and it became so normal that mcdonald's said we can't continue to operate here so they're out it's interesting as i've read some of these local stories scrolling through the comments there are a lot of fed up people sharing their anecdotes their stories their experiences they're angry about what's happening in dc and the surrounding area They see what's happening in their neighborhoods. Then there's always the guy or gal who pipes up occasionally and says, actually, if you look at crime stats, these crimes are down. There isn't a crime wave. This is just a narrative. Now, I think stats and data are important. And some of the data and stats are very bad and don't prove this point. But I would also add when it comes to this kind of crime. And just an overall sense of a lack of security where people no longer feel safe to go even get a burger at McDonald's right at the arena. Because of the homelessness, because of the aggression of people, because of the fights that might break out or the drug deals that you can just see happening. People not in their right mind all over the place. Those don't necessarily count as crime statistics. People don't necessarily call the police or they give up on calling the police because the police can't respond to all of this stuff. They don't close these kinds of cases. So people just sort of shrug. It never gets reported. I remember when I was in Chicago, what was it, last year? I was doing the show, this show, from the Fox News Bureau in in Chicago. There's a 7-Eleven down the block. I went to the 7-Eleven to get my Coke Zero. No surprise there. And while I was waiting to pay for my soda... A guy just walks in, takes as much stuff as he could possibly get off of the shelves, some booze, and just walks out without paying for it. And the person behind the counter was shouting, sir, sir, and kind of chased him and shouted, but just gave up. 
They said it kind of happens all the time. I said, are you going to call the police? They said no. And they charged me, and I paid for my soda, and I left. Like, that doesn't count as a crime in the stats, but that's the kind of environment and feeling that people in some of these major cities are experiencing every day. And to have often progressives trying to pretend like, oh, it's not really happening, let me cherry-pick this stat, they are just completely missing what people are seeing, what they're living through. One other quick story out of D.C. I saw this just the other day. There's a wine and concert venue in D.C. that had to close down, and they're looking for a new location because it was just too unsafe to operate. It's the same old song. A popular live entertainment uh, venue and winery closing its current location in Washington, D.C. due to a stubborn rise in crime. City Winery closing its doors in the Ivy City neighborhood due to worsening safety conditions for staff and customers. Quote, we are temporarily closing in D.C., unfortunately. The neighborhood has gotten too unsafe for our staff, our performing artists, and our patrons, said the founder and CEO of this business. He said, we're looking to operate somewhere else, actively looking. He said, we love the market, but Ivy City, sadly, has not improved. Violent crimes have been on the rise in D.C. since 2010. This is according to Fox Business Story. With that year specifically, or I should say 2020, with that year notching a nearly 20% increase in murders compared to 2019. We aren't just making this up. We're not going to stop talking about it because the election's over and we were just sort of trying to scare people to go out and vote. In some cases, like in New York, a lot of people did vote on this issue in parts of California and elsewhere. Other places, I guess the message didn't really hit home hard enough. Or Republicans weren't offering acceptable alternative candidates. But the problem is real. It is disproportionately present in certain communities and cities. And it continues. And some of the madness, especially from these prosecutors, I mean, they are directly contributing to this. I know, Producer Christine, you were here in D.C. not long ago for my Christmas party. You said parts of the city when you were just out walking around, you just did not feel safe. She said, we're going to get an Uber. We're not going to walk. I mean, walking around this area, like taking the metro to Metro Center, if you can imagine that, if you've been to D.C., picture it, and then walking down that major thoroughfare toward the arena, passing what the National Portrait Gallery is right there, a block away from this McDonald's that's now closing— I would not have thought twice about walking there, ever. But these days, it's just different here. Wyatt, you've lived here for a while. I, I am not exaggerating, am I? No, oh God, this is it's it's really bad. We've talked about this before, yep. and it's not gotten any better. Yep. I just this particular story, like I have been to this McDonald's multiple times, so it's like a wow sort of moment for me, just like the Starbucks closing at Union Station was a wow sort of moment. It's not just theoretical. It's major national brands saying we cannot be here anymore and do this anymore. I saw Wall Street there, Wall Street, Wall, was it Walmart? Walmart CEO was on TV the other day saying that with all of the looting and some of the shoplifting that's happening, without consequence in some of these places, he said that is going to require us raising our prices. 
across the board to compensate. We can't just absorb that. So last thing law-abiding people need in an age of inflation, higher costs because of crime elsewhere, these are realities. And I know this is a very close zoom in on one McDonald's franchise in one place, but it happens to be the one attached to the central, like, culture, sports, music center in America's capital city. And McDonald's is like, we're out. To me, that's news. That's not just a local news fascination. That is a national story emblematic of a national problem. So we opened with it here on the Guy Benson Show. There's so much to get to today. It's the Tuesday edition. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. So here's an interesting story in the Washington Times. Biden's second quarter jobs numbers off by one million. Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank says. Here's the lead of this story. The Biden administration vastly overstated its estimate that employers created more than one million jobs in the second quarter of this year, claiming historic job growth when, in fact, hiring had stalled, according to a new estimate. Job growth was, quote, essentially flat in the second quarter, with only 10,500 net jobs added, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Republicans are accusing the administration of lying about the employment data in an election year and are demanding answers. The The Philadelphia Fed's new assessment shows that employment numbers in 29 states plus the District of Columbia were significantly lower than the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported for March through the June, uh, that March through June period. I mean, you can look through this. They had put out 1.1 million jobs created in the second quarter. White House was boasting about that, but then when the Philadelphia Fed has dug in, and actually looked at the numbers, they found it's only about 10,500 net jobs, which is a huge difference. I'm not an expert on this. Maybe we can get one of our economics people. Is there usually a huge gap between the BLS official number and then the actual numbers based on these types of estimates? Because a million jobs is not a small margin. That is a big difference. Very curious to get to the bottom of that. We'll look into it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Still to come on the Guy Benson Show, Andy McCarthy in the next hour. Oh, you look forward to chatting with Andy. And then Dave Rubin in our final hour. But now we welcome in our first guest of the show today. It's Juan Williams, 
Fox News senior political analyst, columnist at The Hill, and best-selling author. Juan, it's good to have you back. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to talk about Christmas and your family here in just a second, but let's talk a little news and politics first. I opened the show this hour talking about the McDonald's at the Capital One Arena closing after all sorts of problems that they've had in that neighborhood and in that specific location, and then was talking about a few other business closures in D.C. and the crime. I know you and I have talked about some of the crime in D.C. in the past, Juan. You've lived in this city for a very long time. You know a lot of these neighborhoods. You've been there. I'm not crazy, right? Like, things are definitely different in terms of how they feel and just the level of safety in a lot of spots that used to feel not that long ago different, right? I'm I'm not hallucinating that. No, uh, you're on target, guy. You know, I mean, there's a long view, which is, I think, living in the city, Washington, D.C., I'm speaking of, uh, today is so much better than ever. And I've been here. I came out of college in 1976 and came to the Washington Post as an intern. So I've been here a long time, as you point out. And, boy, it used to be rough in a lot of areas, like where the baseball park is, something you would know where the Nationals Park is now, as a police reporter – uh, among the police reporters, we used to call it Blood Bucket. It was just tough. You know, they got the Marine Corps barracks down there. They had low-income housing. They had a lot of gay nightclubs. It was like a mess on weekends. I mean, really. Um, and, you know, we just don't have the level of shooting and murder that we used to have in that 70s, 80s period when you go through crack cocaine and all the rest. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, even as things got better now, we seem to be on the uptick again. And you know, that McDonald's at the Capital One Arena, I didn't even go in there. And, you know, I'm a big basketball guy, but I just would stay out of there because it was a mess. It, it was dysfunction. It was ugly. And yep. I, you haven't mentioned it, but another place that I go frequently because I'm going up to New York to Fox is uh, Union Station. And they closed yep. the Starbucks there because of, uh, you know, homeless population and, you know, people just out of control. And it's really sad because you see people who are addicts or people who are mentally disturbed and you know it's, it makes you know especially in this christmas season it creates a conflict in my mind i'm going to ask a question of guy benson on the guy benson show how about that but All guy right. do you have a conflict of mind too like you see these homeless people or these mentally disturbed people or people who are addicts and you think why am i feeling why am i the one with a complaint here wait a minute these poor people they're suffering these people are in dire need, and yet I'm the one as a, you know, someone of means who's thinking, oh, I'm uncomfortable in their presence instead of opening my heart and saying, how can I help these people? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I'm not going to engage in violence against them, and I think that's that's the fear that some people have. Is this person going to attack me? And unfortunately, that does happen. But And I also feel like, will I be helping if I give this person money, or will I be hurting them? If I offer them food, will that help them or will they get offended and angry and attack me, right? These are these are sometimes the things that you think about. And then especially around Christmas, but even just year-round, you look at some people who are clearly just in a very bad, dangerous place, not in their right mind, and you just, you know, you ask yourself what what can be done and, you know, you just – are so grateful that that's not your situation, but that's also not good enough. People need help. It's it's tough. And now some of this is mental illness and homelessness, no question. Some of it's also just bad people and criminals. 
who are now emboldened. That's the other side of this one. And I think the point that you made is is an important one. If you take a step back with the broader view over the last 50 years, let's say, in Washington, D.C., in a lot of ways, things are better now than they were in the 70s and 80s. I think that's totally true, not really disputable. Same in New York and some other places as well. My point of reference is different. I got to Washington, D.C. in 2010. So I've been here for 12 years. And when I got here in 2010, it was sort of a a renaissance period for Washington, D.C. Right around then, they were building Nats Park. That area was gentrifying. Uh, You know, there was a lot of cool, new, hip stuff coming and, you know, good restaurants opening and all this stuff. And it feels like we're now on downslope away from some of that progress and relative security and and safety and prosperity and that sort of thing towards something else in D.C. And because you brought up, what was it called, Blood Bucket, whatever they used to call it, that neighborhood where the Nats Park is, if you were at a Nats game, let's say, five years ago, you'd say it's amazing that this used to be that, given all the cranes and the buildings going up and the bars and the restaurants and the hotels and all of that and all these smiling faces at the ballpark and everything. I would not even think twice about taking the metro, walking around, no issue. Now, though, that's that's not true. There's been a few shootings right at that ballpark, right? There's, like, one right by the Buffalo Wild Wings there. I think there was an athlete who was shot right around there. I mean, that area, which seemed to be a symbol of the progress that D.C. was making, has has taken some steps backward. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, look, to me... You have isolated incidents that get a lot of attention. We seem to have so many guns in the country right now. I don't want to get into a conversation about gun control, but obviously we have a lot of guns and a lot of shootings, and it's it's disturbing people. In the morning paper, there was a report about two young people shot over in the Adams Morgan area, very an area that's very active at night, nightclubs, great restaurants for that millennial crowd that you were talking about. Um, very upsetting to me. But here's the thing that I notice, Guy, uh, and, and uh, you know, I say this as a black American male, that in the morning paper today, there was a story about how homicide is now the leading cause of death in children, uh, and a lot of it tied to guns, but specifically among black kids. And, Guy, it's it's really shocking. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, I, I think the numbers were something like rate of homicide among black children in the U.S. went up 16% from, 18, from 2018 to 2020. Mm. And black and Hispanic children are victims of increasing rates of homicide since 2012, 2014. So a lot of this is tied to kids who are minority kids, but not just minority kids. It's not my kids. It's kids who live in high-poverty areas. And, you know, you think about the pandemic, kids who were out of school, kids who fell farther behind, kids who feel they don't have job opportunities. And with the Christmas season, you see more of these carjackings around here in Washington, D.C. And guess who's the number one perpetrator, according to the police chief? It's these kids ages like, you know, 12 to 15, you think, what yeah. is going on? Where are they? Young parents? teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Carjacking people, It's just it's been wild. And you brought up guns. We don't go down that route. In this conversation, we don't have to. I just say some of the strictest gun laws in the country are here. And yet, dot, 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 
there's a lot of problems. Uh, and Juan, we will, I'm sure, have that conversation again, especially if things don't get better or get worse. I hope not, but uh, it's something that we're talking about through the D.C. lens, but it's also true a lot of other places. It's not just D.C. It's other major cities and urban areas as well, which is why I wanted to bring it up and have your perspective, because I was I opened the show talking about it. I asked Wyatt to come on the air. We have a different perspective than you do. We've been here less time from different backgrounds. I just wanted to hear your side of it and how you're seeing it. And it seems like in a lot of ways we we agree uh, that the problems are real. Solutions are complicated. Meanwhile, Juan, another political question. I saw this from our colleague Rich Edson here at Fox. He tweeted uh, just a short while ago. I just wrapped an interview with Senator Kirsten Cinema. She announced that she, Senator Tom Tillis, and Senator John Cornyn will lead a bipartisan trip among senators to the border in Texas and Arizona next month, and she is urging the president to also visit the border. As a Democrat, Juan, do you think President Biden should go to the border and see what's happening down there for himself? It's fine. I don't know that it's going to change anything. I think all the Republicans running down there are doing so largely for PR reasons. But to me, I'd prefer if they'd stay in Washington and have a vote on comprehensive immigration reform that would solve the problem, that would say, here's what we stand for in terms of our rules on asylum. Here's our rules on the people. I think it's now close to 12 million people who are illegal immigrants already in the country. And here's what we're going to do to improve security at the border so that there's an orderly process and we know that we are keeping out the bad guys. I'd like to see that more than anybody run to the border for a picture. Well, I think it was about 12 million before this president took office, and that number would be at least 16 million now based on the numbers that we have. So it's a burgeoning, this ballooning number. It's totally unsustainable. You and I definitely disagree on what to do about that. Although I do agree with you on the narrow point that Biden going or not going makes no difference if the policies don't change. Now, you might have a different view of what the policies should be and how they should be passed and that sort of thing. But whether the president goes and the, you know, the cameras click and he's there or not is ultimately a sideshow if the policies fueling this thing remain in place. Meanwhile, Juan Williams, let's put some of those issues behind us. For the moment, because it is almost Christmas. I actually got very excited at the start of the show. I always give the day and the date and all of that. December 20th. So we, we are really close now. You can almost taste it. It is full-blown Christmas time here. Uh, what a wonderful holiday. I'm a big Thanksgiving fan. It's my favorite holiday. But it, part of the reason that I love Thanksgiving is because it leads into the Christmas season, which is so great. I've got family coming into town. What are you guys doing in the Williams household for Christmas this year, and do you have the, like, the same traditions that you do every year, or do you mix it up? No, we have traditions. So we typically go to my wife's brother's house on Christmas Eve, and there, he has a feast that's in the tradition, by the way, of her family. I mean, her parents did this when they were alive, and now her brother does it. And then we used to have Christmas dinner at our house, Guy. And the family would come, our children, their children, uh, her brother, and his children and their families. But this year has been a difficult year for us. Uh, my wife had a major surgery, radical mastectomy, and it's really taken it out of her. So this is a transition year, Guy. What's going to happen is that my daughter is going to have Christmas dinner at her house. And we will be going over there, and all the people who came here 
you know, for, I guess, 20-plus, 30 years or so, are now going over there. So yeah. it's like, you know, you're watching generational change, and it's yep. really it's really around Christmas, the time when families come together, this family time of year. Yeah, passing of the torch, and we've done a bit of that at my house as well. We've done Thanksgivings and Christmases now with me hosting and, and Adam in recent years, and that's been an adjustment and a change. It's something that I welcome, but it's definitely different, and you try to hang on to certain very specific traditions and then... Some become impractical. You create some new traditions. Are there any foods that you always have at Christmas? We're very specific about our food at Thanksgiving. Christmas, we go out to dinner Christmas Eve, and then we cook Christmas Day. Uh, but it sometimes varies a little bit. Some people, though, are, you know, like same meal every year, like clockwork. Yeah, I think I think we're pretty consistent. But I got to tell you, I think you'd be surprised if you came to the table because my wife is a big fan of sauerkraut. I'm not. She is. But oh. every Christmas, there's sauerkraut on the table. So does the sauerkraut go with what, like pork or beef no, or I mean, what? Turkey. There's turkey. There's ham. I mean, I don't eat it. I got to tell you also, <laughs> in her parents' house, and this was disgusting to me, on Christmas Eve, they would have chitlins, and I can't stand the smell, much less <laughs> imagine eating such a thing. But again, it, you know, that's the way that they did it. And now my sister-in-law, she has something that I really, again, I can't stand the taste of, which is, uh, you know, creamed onions. I'm like, what is what is this? I don't get it. But again, <laughs> sounds like you're a dissatisfied dissatisfied customer when it comes to the food choices at some of these dinners, Juan. Maybe you should go out to dinner. Just take yourself to your favorite restaurant by yourself on the 26th for whatever you want to eat. No sauerkraut, no creamed onions, although I like those. No chitlins. It's whatever you want. Uh, Last question. I know you've got now a little brood of grandkids. How do the grandparents spoil the grandkids at Christmas? Oh, man. You know, I think there's a sign in our refrigerator guy and it says uh you can't the, the grandchildren are spoiled because it's not proper to spank grandparents and uh we are grandparents who love to spoil and this year now that you brought it up we have a special reason to celebrate because in the midst of all the concern about respiratory viruses covid obviously and high high rate of flu we had a young man born uh two months ago today october 20th uh, a new grandson, August Williams. And uh, I can't tell you, Guy, it meant so much to us, to the family. He's the first grandson with the Williams name. That's very exciting, and we're thrilled for you and your family. And I know it's a whole extended family, and you've got a lot of different viewpoints around the table. I think sometimes you find yourself outnumbered from time to time, <laughs> as you occasionally do here as well at work. But uh, we always appreciate your perspective, even when we disagree, which is often, but we love having you here. Merry Christmas, Juan, to you and to your wife and to your your kids and now your grandkids as well. I hope you guys have a great one, and I do hope that you can have a totally acceptable feast after you suffer through the rest of it. <laughs> well, blessings to you, my friend. I tell you what, there's no bah humbug about the Guy Benson Show. It's just good times. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Juan Williams, our friend, our guest here, Fox News senior political analyst, columnist at the Hill, best-selling author. Juan, we appreciate it. And with that, we will step aside. Very quick break. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Just a few days ago, maybe it was a week or two at this point, we played a soundbite here on the show of Hillary Clinton saying something that I actually thought was right. She said that the Biden administration should stop negotiating with Iran on anything, including the nuclear deal. She said we cannot be legitimizing that regime at all as they are doing what they're doing to their citizens, to their women, etc. She said we cannot do that. And I was like, yeah, it's about time. Thank you. Well, this is interesting from Axios. New story today. Headline, Biden in newly surfaced video says Iran nuclear deal is, quote, dead. President Biden said on the sidelines of a November 4th election rally that the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran is, quote, dead, but stressed the U.S. wouldn't formally announce it, according to a new video that surfaced on social media late Monday. So it appears that he said this in California at an election rally, like a side short conversation he had with a woman, like a voter. He said that the deal and the negotiation on the Iran deal, uh, on you know the, the nuclear agreement and that pursuit, quote, is dead. He said they would not announce it for a lot of reasons. Not going to announce it. Long story, he said. Okay. I mean, it seems like a very major foreign policy decision, a correct one, I would say. Maybe there are reasons why they didn't want to announce it publicly, but he told some rando at a campaign rally with cameras rolling. We just found out about it now. Kind of a fascinating little snippet there, but I would say a hopeful one. A little bit more clarity, perhaps. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour is here on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. Merry Christmas. Glad to have you all here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast each and every day after the show is over, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. You can follow us at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. Let's bring you a Fox News alert, and we will get you the market update, which is sponsored by Americans for Prosperity. They are committed to empowering each and every American to realize their own American dream by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. Americansforprosperity.org. And the Dow closing the day up 92 points, finishing at 32,850. Let's turn to our next guest. It is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. And Andy, it is great to have you here. Merry Christmas. Guy, Merry Christmas. Thanks so much. Let's start with what happened yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court temporarily postponing perhaps this Title 42 reversal that we've been talking about a lot here on the show when it comes to immigration, illegal immigration, the border crisis. This Title 42 expiration is going to be a disaster whenever it happens. It might not happen tomorrow as scheduled based on what SCOTUS 
seem to have done on some sort of uh, non-substantive basis. This was more procedural. Can you just explain what happened? Well, this is complicated, Guy, because it involves two different litigations. There's one that's in front of uh, the Supreme Court now, which is the one that they issued a Basically, they frozen things um, for now and ordered the Justice Department to uh, respond by, I believe, it's close of business today. Today, yeah. Um, yes. Um, but here's the thing. The, there's two different litigations. The first one involves the, the, these 24 states um, who basically won a case in the sense that a, a federal judge in Louisiana – um, said that Title 42 had to remain in place because the Biden administration had um, violated the Administrative Procedure Act uh, in rescinding it. So what happened is a, a sort of a tactic that the Supreme Court uh, has referred to or just, Chief Justice Roberts has referred to in, in other cases as uh, collective acquiescence. What happened was a, a sort of collusive lawsuit was then brought in the District of Columbia by illegal aliens who were claiming to have been their uh, their ability to seek asylum uh, was undermined by Title 42, and they negotiate. You know, they're bringing the suit, but on the other side of the suit is the Biden administration, which doesn't want to defend uh, Title 42. Uh, so they had a very sort of chummy um, litigation, and they got in front of Judge uh, Emmett Sullivan, uh, who was also sympathetic, and he basically said uh, there's no basis to continue Title 42 because there's no pandemic emergency anymore. So what the states are now complaining about is that by this kind of collusive lawsuit arrangement, um, the Biden administration is getting. When you say out collusive, of, Andy, just just so I'm understanding this correctly, the immigration activists who are almost certainly bankrolling the lawsuit from these illegal immigrants who say that they are having their ability to declare asylum or have that adjudicated, uh, you know, they're saying that they should not have Title 42 standing in their way. That's one side of the lawsuit. The other side of the lawsuit should be the federal government saying, "No, this is okay." Here's why. But the Biden administration, for their political reasons, actually agrees on the sort of the the underlying point here. So the two sides that are supposed to be going head to head in court, it's supposed to be adversarial. In reality, they actually agree. So they've sort of orchestrated this whole kind of legal performance or where they've they've choreographed this legal dance to get the outcome that they want because they're effectively on the same side, even though nominally they're on opposite sides. Is that basically it? Correct. Correct. And the, and the other side okay. of it is because of that arrangement, then in the other lawsuit, the Biden administration gets away with not complying with the Administrative Procedure Act. So that's the, uh, that's Got the it. claim. Okay. So the, the upshot is what? Because, you know, we've been hearing now for weeks all these dire warnings correctly, the warnings are right, that if Title 42 expires tomorrow, which is the scheduled plan, all hell will break loose beyond what we've already seen at the border, which has been this historic catastrophe. Supreme Court, you said there's it's complicated because there's two different litigations at play here. Ultimately, is there a change? Is this thing going to stay for a while or 
is that still up in the air? Well, I think the problem here, Guy, is that we're kind of stacking fraud on fraud, right? I think the Supreme Court is upset about this idea of, you know, collusive lawsuits to undermine important interests. At the same time, you know, Title 42 is a pretext. It's not a policy. Uh, Title 42 is about, um, you know, whether you have a contagious disease emergency or not. Um, It was used really pretextually um, as an excuse or a substitute for having an actual immigration border enforcement policy. But the pandemic was obviously not going to go on forever. And when it ended, you were going to have the same problem of the border enforcement policy. So what these states are complaining about is that the, uh, you know, on the surface, they're complaining about the violation of the Administrative Administrative Procedures Act. Fine. But what they're really angry about, and rightfully so, is that we don't have an immigration enforcement policy, which really doesn't have anything to do with Title 42 or, frankly, the Supreme Court. Um, You know, what that's got to do is that you have the political branches of government, which are responsible for border security, are not doing their job. And the Supreme Court can't make them do their job. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think that the administration probably, and I'm not a constitutional expert or a lawyer at all, it seems to me as though the Biden administration has the ability legally to end Title 42. I mean, they're trying to have it both ways on the pandemic emergency and still kind of clinging on to the emergency for other political reasons like student loans. But overall, I think it's within their power to do this. I also think it's extremely ill-advised and their entire policy is a giant disaster and failure. Uh, but you can you can think both of those things at the same time. And I sort of I get frustrated sometimes when, you know, Trump wasn't allowed that the courts blocked Trump from ending an executive action from the previous president. And then Joe Biden comes in and he's allowed to undo stuff from Trump. I mean, there, there seem to be sometimes double standards, but that's more in the weeds. I think that they have the ability to end Title 42. I think it's probably the right thing to do in terms of the the pandemic being over. But the result, the outcome in the absence of other replacement policies that are as good or better is going to be absolutely awful. So whether you call it Title 42 or something else that's better, neither of those things will be in place. And I think we'll see the border crisis somehow get even worse, perhaps much worse. Meanwhile, Andy, I do want to turn to the January 6th committee. Uh, Their announcements yesterday, not a big surprise. The referrals for criminal prosecution of the president There were four criminal referrals that they put forward. Uh, You look at the composition, the political composition of that committee, uh, not terribly surprising. That committee will not exist soon because the Republicans are taking the House back over. I saw Vice President Pence saying he hopes that the Justice Department doesn't prosecute the former president. He said the president was reckless, but it's not necessarily criminal to have taken bad legal advice. I think that's a bit of a whitewash from Pence. This was much more than Trump being reckless. It wasn't Trump taking bad legal advice. It was Trump driving a giant lie that had real consequences. That is also separate from the question of whether or not he committed a crime. What is your analysis of the significance of the committee with these referrals? I know there's no like binding legal action there. This is not a legally binding referral. And I wonder if it actually might make the whole thing look even more political if the Justice Department decides to file 
charges at some point. Yeah, guy, that's the real problem. I mean, the the, the four uh, offenses that they referred to the Justice Department are very weak when you look at them carefully. But I think the more serious problem, if you if you really want to see Trump get prosecuted for something arising out of January 6th, um, what the committee has done was make it inevitable now that Trump will be able to argue if the special counsel does charge him with the January 6th offense, that this was driven by a hyper-political committee. He'll be able to say that for two years, the Justice Department looked at this very carefully. Uh, they investigated. They charged 800 people. They never alleged that Trump was an unindicted co-conspirator or that he had anything to do with the violence. And then this uh, you know, Democrat-controlled and hand-picked committee in a very high-profile way come out, it came out and made these politically motivated uh, referrals, and suddenly the Biden Justice Department and its special counsel hopped to and filed an indictment, which had the effect of removing uh, the guy who's running against Biden for president. Uh, and that'll be the narrative. And, it, you know, maybe we would have heard some of that no matter what happens. But I don't think the, the committee is making it harder for the Justice Department to prosecute this guy. And if, the, if that's what you want, if you want to see a prosecution, uh, I don't see why they did this. They could have just released their report, uh, released all the transcripts that they developed that might have been very helpful to the Justice Department, and the report could have stood on its own without having to make, make referrals, which don't have any legal consequence anyhow. Do you think they did it just because they couldn't help themselves and they felt like, you know, this is our last hurrah, we're probably not going to see prosecutions or they're unlikely, so let's just put it out there so we can satisfy a certain constituency? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think that they, you know, the the left really would like to see Trump get charged with a January 6th offense. And if that happens, the committee would like to take credit for, uh, you know, contributing to that. So by you know, getting in ahead of the potential prosecution, they can say. Yeah, although to your point, Andy, that could end up having the opposite effect or being counterproductive if the DOJ doesn't want to look political, which there's no guarantee of that either. We'll be watching Andy McCarthy, our guest. Merry Christmas, sir. Thanks for coming on. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Headline from the Los Angeles Times, Harvey Weinstein convicted of rape in Los Angeles. Here's the story. A Los Angeles jury on Monday found Harvey Weinstein guilty of rape, delivering a verdict that further condemns the disgraced movie titan whose treatment of women helped spur the Me Too movement. The decision all but ensures that Weinstein, who is 70 in poor health and serving a 23-year prison sentence in New York for other rapes, will spend the rest of his life behind bars. He is scheduled to be sentenced in the Los Angeles case early next year, but must complete his current prison sentence before being transferred to California. Following a bitter trial that stretched over a month, jurors deliberated for more than nine days before returning to convict Weinstein of forcible rape and other charges. The charges were based on the account of a woman who accused Weinstein of attacking her in a Beverly Hills hotel room in 2013. Weinstein showed little emotion as the verdicts were read in a downtown courtroom, pressing his hands to his head. He did not testify at either of his trials. On Monday, his defense attorneys declined to comment outside the courthouse. So the Me Too movement, in my mind, has been a mixed bag. 
in some important ways, it has been a needed and long overdue reckoning. I think it also went too far in other ways, where due process was thrown out the window, where serious crimes like forcible rape were conflated with sexual jokes or innuendo that might have offended someone. It was all just lumped under this category of Me Too. And I think some people have been unfairly treated, especially sort of at the zenith of that moment where there was perhaps an overcorrection in some ways. But Harvey Weinstein is very much not a victim of any sort of overreaction. He was a predator for years. And his money and his power and his privilege and his proximity to power as a big donor in the political class, he was on the left, of course, in Hollywood, insulated him for a very long time where he would abuse women and use them as these playthings, sometimes totally against their will, and he got away with it in a conspiracy of silence in Hollywood for a very long time because no one really wanted to upset or offend or cross the all-powerful movie producer extraordinaire, one of the most powerful guys in town. And so he did whatever he wanted, and it was awful. And finally the moment arrived where people could stand up and say things and be treated seriously and be believed. And Weinstein got due process. He wasn't just torn down based on nothing. Ronan Farrow, a friend of mine, of course, wrote the book on this. At The New Yorker, he had written a lot of pieces, had done work at NBC, and then he wrote Catch and Kill, which details everything. An extraordinary read. We had Ronan actually in studio a few years ago for an hour talking about that book. That really helped bring down Harvey Weinstein. Then came a bunch of criminal charges and now multiple convictions. And it looks likely that that guy is going to spend the rest of his life in jail, in prison, which is what he deserves. So I think it's important to think in a nuanced way about allegations and accusations. I think when there's evidence and due process and someone is clearly guilty, we should all be able to celebrate Justice being served. And the good side, the constructive side of the Me Too movement is that previously protected people, especially men, who learned they could get away with anything, finally had a lot of that catch up to them. Chickens coming home to roost. And their horrible behavior was exposed. And the fact that Weinstein has now been put away for the rest of his life, for multiple crimes, hopefully sends an important message to other people saying, okay, if there was a time and there was an era where people could, through their influence and their money and other things, get away with stuff, that might not be such a sure bet anymore. Look what happened to the most influential, powerful producer in all of Hollywood. Maybe that will improve some things. And I have to say, sometimes I shudder when I think about what has happened through the years in that industry and others that we never knew about, we'll never know about. What people had to suffer in silence, feeling like they would never be believed, that is not something that we should ever bring back. Let's guard against excess. Let's guard against going too far. Let's keep the importance of innocent until proven guilty, and all of that intact, it's essential to our civilization, frankly. 
But let's not go back to the bad old days. And Harvey Weinstein, in some big ways, represents, personifies the bad old days on this front. And now another felony conviction for a guy who obviously deserves it many times over. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. There he goes again. President Joe Biden telling a story over the weekend to a group of veterans that appears to be false. Of course, it involves something that his dad told him, allegedly, and him assuring everyone that he wasn't joking, which he often does when he's lying. Cut 16. You know, I, uh, my dad, when I got elected vice president, he said, Joey, Uncle Frank fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was not feeling very well now, but not because of the Battle of the Bulge, but he said, and he won the Purple Heart. And he never received it. He never, he never got it. Do you think you could help him get it? We'll surprise him. So he got him the Purple Heart. He had won it in the Battle of the Bulge. And I remember he came over to the house, and I came out, and he said, present it to him. Okay, we had the family there. I said, Uncle Frank, you won this, and I went to peace. He said, I don't want the damn thing. I'm serious. He said, I don't want it. I said, what's the matter, Uncle Frank? You earned it. He said, yeah, but the others died. The others died. I lived. I don't want it. I'm serious, the president said. Here's the New York Post. President Biden claimed Friday that his uncle Frank Biden won the Purple Heart for his actions during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. But there's no evidence of the award and key details of the story are chronologically impossible. Biden told the story apparently to make a point about the humility of veterans, but the known facts indicate the story isn't true. Biden's father died in September 2002, more than six years before his son was elected vice president. He said this all happened while he was vice president. And Frank Biden, the uncle involved here, died in 1999, years before that. Frank Biden's tombstone does not identify him as a Purple Heart honoree, nor does his obituary. A partial registry of known Purple Heart recipients also doesn't note anyone by that name having received the award. The Post librarians could not locate prior references to Frank Biden receiving the Purple Heart, according to the Nexus Archive. And a repository of Joe Biden's public statements doesn't contain any prior references to it either. The tale involving Biden's uncle is similar to another emotionally impactful but false story told by then-presidential candidate Joe Biden in 2019, this one involving a Navy captain supposedly refusing to accept a silver star for his heroism in Afghanistan. A Washington Post fact check from the Times said Biden, quote, jumbled elements of at least three actual events into one story of bravery, compassion, and regret that never happened. And this is just something that Joe Biden, this is like a low-level Joe Biden-invented story. He has done stuff like this for his whole life, not because he's getting up there in age now. He has done this forever, about his own biography, stories like this, trying to ingratiate himself with audiences, and just fabricating stuff. And this is just another example of it. So an update from the Joe Tales, I guess. And on that note, I want to take a quick break because I want to address something, something perhaps similar involving a different politician, a story that just broke yesterday. I will bring you that as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Well, since we're on the topic of tall tales or alleged tall tales by politicians, I have to read from this story that came out yesterday in the New York Times. I say I have to do it because we had this politician that it focuses on on the show as a trailblazing, history-making congressman-elect from New York and Long Island, George Santos, a Republican, flipped a district in New York State, one of those four flipped seats for the Republicans in New York alone, a key part of getting the GOP the majority in the House. Santos comes from a very interesting, diverse background based on his biography. He's also the first ever Republican newly elected to Congress who's openly gay which was interesting to us. I've met him a few times. We had a very friendly interview here on the show just shortly after the election talking about that achievement. He ran a good campaign. He was disciplined. The Democrats came after him on a number of different topics, President Trump, abortion, and some others. And he was able to parry some of those attacks and respond and win pretty comfortably in that district on Long Island. And I've enjoyed my time that I've spent very limited chatting with George in person once or twice and then here on the air on this program. Because we brought him to this audience, I feel obligated to now inform you of this series of questions, I would say serious questions being asked by The New York Times, which sought to confirm or substantiate a whole host of claims that George Santos has made about himself, and they've been unable to do so. And it seems like perhaps the Democrats didn't really do a whole bunch of opposition research on George Santos's background. They had their playbook, Trump and abortion, back and forth in New York, and they just stuck with that. Maybe they didn't bother to even dig into just basic biographical stuff about their opponent. So let me read to you a few snippets from this piece called Who is Representative-elect George Santos? His resume may be largely fiction. A New York Times review of public documents and court filings from the United States and Brazil, as well as various attempts to verify claims that Mr. Santos, 34, made on the campaign trail, calls into question key parts of the resume he sold to voters. Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, the marquee Wall Street firms on Mr. Santos's campaign biography, told the Times they had no record of his ever working there. Officials at Baruch College, which Mr. Santos said he graduated from in 2010, could find no record of anyone matching his name and date of birth graduating that year. There was also little evidence that his animal rescue group, Friends of Pets United, was, as Mr. Santos claimed, a tax-exempt organization. The IRS could locate no record of a registered charity with that name. His financial disclosure forms suggest a life of some wealth. He lent his campaign more than $700,000 during the midterm election and has donated thousands of dollars to other campaigns and candidates in the last two years. He reported a $750,000 salary and over $1 million in dividends from his company, the DeVolder Organization. While Mr. Santos has described a family fortune in real estate, he has not disclosed, nor could the Times find, records of his properties. And by the way, within the last few years, he was thrown out of apartments, according to the New York Times. This is based on their reporting. We'll have more to say about that in a second. But he was evicted or caught up in eviction proceedings at two different apartments because of unpaid rent and not huge amounts of money. 
just a few years ago. And now he's got, I guess, millions, and it's sort of unclear where that came from. Another job that he had as recently as 2020, his only listed salary plus commission and bonuses was $55,000. That was just two years ago. So some of this, at least on paper, with the Times trying to track it down, really doesn't make sense. At the same time, the New York Times reports, new revelations uncovered by the Times, including the omission of key information on Mr. Santos's personal financial disclosures and criminal charges for check fraud in Brazil, have the potential to create ethical and possibly legal challenges once he takes office. Mr. Santos did not respond to repeated requests from the Times that he furnish either documents or a resume with dates that would help to substantiate the claims he made on the campaign trail. So this Brazil criminal charge stems from allegations in 2008. George Santos was 19 at the time. And the Times reports, quote, he stole a checkbook from a man his mother was caring for, according to Brazilian court records. Police and court records show that Mr. Santos used the checkbook to make fraudulent purchases, including a pair of shoes. Two years later, Mr. Santos confessed to the crime and was later charged. The court and local prosecutor in Brazil confirmed the case remains unresolved. Mr. Santos did not respond to an official summons, and a court representative could not find him at his given address. Records show. That period in Brazil overlapped with when Mr. Santos said he was attending Baruch College, where he has said he was awarded a bachelor's degree in economics and finance. But Baruch College said it was unable to find records of Mr. Santos, including multiple variations of his first, middle, and last names having graduated in 2010, as he claimed. A bio of Mr. Santos on the National Republican Congressional Committee website, which is the House Republicans' campaign arm, also includes a stint at New York University. The claim is not repeated elsewhere, and an NYU spokesman found no attendance records matching Santos's name and date of birth. After he said he graduated from college, Santos began working at Citigroup eventually becoming, quote, an associate asset manager in the company's real estate division, according to a version of his biography that was on his campaign site as recently as April. A spokeswoman for Citigroup said the company could not confirm Mr. Santos's employment. She also said she was unfamiliar with Santos's self-described job title and noted that Citi sold off its asset management operations in 2005. Santos has also asserted that his personal life had intersected with tragedy. He said in an interview with WNYC that his company, which he did not identify, quote, lost four employees at the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando in 2016. But a Times review of news coverage and obituaries found that none of the 49 victims appeared to have worked at the various firms named in his biography. Then there's this matter of the Pet charity, Friends of Pets United, which they couldn't really find as a registered charity anywhere. The Times did some digging. Friends of Pets United held at least one fundraiser with a New Jersey animal rescue group in 2017. The invitation promised drinks, donated raffle items, and a live band. Mr. Santos charged $50 for entry according to an online fundraising page that promoted the event. But the event's beneficiary, which asked for anonymity for fear of retribution, said that she never received any of the funds, with Mr. Santos only offering repeated excuses for not forwarding the money. Then there's the matter of these evictions. Here's one more line I want to read to you near the end of the piece. The New York Times, quote, attempted to interview Mr. Santos at the address where he is registered to vote, 
and that was associated with a campaign donation he made in October. But a person at that address said on Sunday that she was not familiar with him. Okay. On its face, this looks bad, very bad. It seems, if this is true, that George Santos has publicly claimed to be a lot of things and to have done a lot of things that either may not be true, that we don't really have confirmation of, or just flat out weren't true at all. One of his attorneys put out a statement yesterday in response to this, not a very long statement, not substantive at all, basically saying this is uh, you know left-wing media, witch hunt by the New York Times. He's been a candidate for four years. He's about to get sworn in, basically saying it's all untrue. There's always two sides to a story. And I would like to hear his side of this, not as an attack on the New York Times, but by bringing the actual receipts to verify his claims and contradict what the New York Times has reported. And there are some very basic questions that I think he should answer. And I will let you know that I got his phone number. I texted him yesterday offering him to come on the show to tell his side, to answer some questions. He indicated that he was interested in doing that perhaps today. He said he would keep me posted. I followed up a few times. I haven't heard back from him since. And that invitation is very much open. I am skeptical now of him in ways that I wasn't before. I'm also suspicious of the New York Times and don't just take their reporting as the gospel truth automatically either. I would like to hear what he has to say about this. I think I can ask some fair questions, and I think he owes voters who just elected him some answers on this stuff. If you present yourself a certain way, those things should be true. So that opportunity, that invitation is still wide open. I hope the congressman-elect will choose to come on. I don't want to be a jerk or super accusatory. I just want to ask him some basic questions raised by this report, which obviously involved quite a lot of shoe leather reporting. And because the Times asked for some proof, and apparently that proof was not forthcoming, he didn't cooperate with the story, and then the statement that they put out last night that was attacking the Times but not really responsive to the reporting, I think that the time is coming where he has to answer some stuff specifically. And I would be very happy to have that conversation right here. Now, I will make this point. Let's say he's been dishonest about some of this stuff or all of this stuff. Is that a very bad look? Would that be a very bad look? Would it call into question his integrity on other things? Sure. Would it be disqualifying for him to be a member of Congress? Well, as we've discussed before, including just a moment ago, we have a president of the United States who has serially made things up throughout his entire career, including multiple incidents of inventing elements of his CV, his achievements academically, multiple incidents of plagiarism. I mean, the list goes on with Joe Biden. And that guy only became a senator and then the vice president and then the president. In the minds of Democratic voters, this kind of thing really isn't disqualifying. If anything, George Santos, even if the worst is true, 
would be, I'd say, highly qualified to become, I don't know, a senator from Massachusetts. Elizabeth Warren lied about her ethnicity for years for personal gain and then has been indignant when she got called out on it. And her excuses have been embarrassing. Or maybe Santos could go. Of course, he'd have to be a liberal Democrat. That's crucial in all of this. But he could go to Connecticut and become a U.S. senator there. All he'd have to do is engage in some low-key stolen valor and lie about serving in a war that he didn't. Because that's what Richard Blumenthal did as he became a statewide official in Connecticut and then a U.S. senator. Since reelected, since that came out, that he lied about serving in Vietnam, which I think is a very dishonorable thing to do. So if you're a lefty in good standing and a Democrat with ambition who might help the party and their tribe attain power and pursue power in an agenda, I guess the rules are you can kind of do or say whatever you want about your past, even if it's all completely untrue or partially untrue in major ways. Now, I don't think that's good. I don't think it reflects well on our politics or on those individuals. But if that's the rule, if that's the set of rules set up by the left, I'm not sure why George Santos, even if he turns out to be like the guy from Catch Me If You Can, I don't know why he couldn't stay in Congress if we're talking about their standards that they've erected for themselves on their side of things. Now, the other question is, do the voters in the 3rd District of New York want to tolerate something like this. They've just elected him. He could serve out one term for sure. Would he be in real trouble trying to get reelected in light of all this stuff? That I don't know. That's a political question. But there are substantive questions, fact versus fiction, truth versus lies, accuracy versus fabrication, that I think regardless of what the Democrats and media standards might be, I think people in positions of power and public trust should have to answer. And part of accountability and transparency and being in the public eye that way involves answering those types of questions. Questions that I would like to ask politely to the congressman-elect. If he would like to come back on the show, I've made the invitation privately and now publicly as well. And I will let you know if we hear back from him or his team. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Dave Rubin is here. You don't want to miss that conversation straight ahead. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day when the show is over, on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. We are restocking for Christmas. TheLongDrink.com, you can find out where it's sold near you. They're in more than 40 states now, really just exploding in popularity. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. 
Well, joining us now is Dave Rubin, host of the very popular long-form talk show, The Rubin Report, author of the book, Don't Burn This Book. And Dave, it's great to have you back. Happy Hanukkah to you. Thank you, guys. Good to be with you. Now, before we get into politics, I did have to ask this. Am I correct that this is your first holiday season as a parent? It is my first holiday season as a parent. We, we now have uh, two boys who are both sleeping at the moment, hence I can join you on air. And it's also my <laughs> first holiday season uh, in, in actually in my home in Florida. I got to Florida. We got to Florida a year ago, two days ago. And uh, we were we were strung up for a little while before we closed on our house. So I am in a in a great holiday mood. And and man, what a what a crazy fast year. And and it's ending in just such a such a sort of maniacal way with all of this stuff being exposed on Twitter. And uh, and I'm feeling good about the work that I'm doing and the the life that I'm leading. So good to be with you. That's excellent. And we're going to talk about Florida. We're going to talk about Twitter. Just one more question on the personal front, if I may, because as you mentioned, you have two boys now. A Christmas ago and a Hanukkah season ago, you had no kids. So you went from zero to two in less than a year. That's got to be a little bit crazy. How are you guys dealing? <laughs> well, yes, we have uh, we have a four-month-old and a two-month-old, which I could Ooh. spend the entire portion of this uh, program with you discussing the complexities of surrogacy and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, I get why parents now say it's a blessing. You know, waking up and, you know, having a, a beautiful young baby smiling at you uh, or sometimes spitting up on you or whatever it might be is a much better way to start the day than, you know, fighting with an anonymous uh, anime avatar on Twitter. Uh, so that's been a nice sort of adjustment in life. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that it's done for you, you get this too, you know, guys that talk about politics for a living, um, you know, there's a sort of uh, sort of immediacy to it. How does it affect my life where now I, I do have a little more of of a runway of like, well, it's not just my life I'm worried about now. It's it's the next generation's life, which, of mm-hmm. course, you know that intellectually without having kids. Uh, but mm-hmm. then, you know, looking at these kids and going, man, I want the world to be as good or better, hopefully better for you than it was for me. So it's a, it's an added boost into the to the work and to the stuff that I've you know, spent most of my life pushing for and caring about. See, that's such a lovely, high-minded answer. I was just wondering if you're getting any sleep. No, <laughs> not much, man. <laughs> not, not much. Uh, you know, a little bit here and there. I try to catch up. I'm, I'm a big fan of the uh, if they pass out while I'm feeding them, I can somehow sneak in a 10-minute nap. And, you know, over time, if you get three 10-minute naps in a day, you've yep. got a half hour and you can bank it. And then if you lose two hours, you're only down an hour and a half. So you just kind of you make it happen. You're becoming a master of the restorative catnap, it sounds like, <laughs> by necessity, not by design. It's sort of just what you have to do. All right, yeah. so you said it's been a year since you became a Floridian. A year and two days, you made a big deal out of leaving California, which I know you were for a long time reluctant to do, and then you finally had enough. You moved down to sort of the fortress of freedom in the country, Florida. How has the year been for you? As a new resident of that state, how is your life different, better, worse than it was before in your previous spot? I mean, I can tell you with no sarcasm or hyperbole or exaggeration that this has been without question the best year of my life. I mean, obviously, the the kids are are an incredible 
uh, an integral piece of that. But on on the part related to freedom and related to what's going on in this country and the, and the political side, uh, you know, in essence, when I was in Cali for that last year, I was campaigning to get rid of Gavin Newsom. I was on the road with Larry Elder, and he, obviously he was the the number one candidate in the in the recall election going against Gavin. And I really, by the end, felt like an enemy of the state. I was audited by the state, I think, three days after the recall, which not coincidentally was the same day I put my house up for sale. And I felt like I was really fleeing. And I landed uh, in Miami, and I genuinely felt something lift off my chest because so many of the ideas and the things that I care about were not in line with what was going on in California. And then I get to Florida where – the spirit of freedom is so strong. And, Guy, the thing is, that's not an intellectual exercise. That's not, oh, freedom is strong, like it doesn't mean anything in reality. It's like, man, not only does it mean something because the schools stayed open and, and they didn't force masks and all of that stuff that we know about, but what that does when you leave choices up to people, people are actually happier and more pleasant. And believe it or not, they physically look better and they're more engaged with each other. So, I, you know, I love the community that I live in and the neighbors and the new friends that I have. Uh, obviously, you know, I've done a bunch of stuff, including just yesterday. Uh, I was part of the, uh, the Freedom Blueprint Conference with Governor DeSantis. And I think he is really, in essence, it doesn't say it on his desk, but in a lot of ways, he's the president of the United States now because he is the, he is the leader of a free America. And uh, and it's nice to be part of something where you feel like you can be there and strengthen it as opposed to being part of something that you feel like you have to fight it all the time. I think there are moments that are it's valuable to, to fight against the system. And I, I really did give it my all. Uh, but I am certainly enjoying this end of it much more. Well, and when you're fighting statewide in a place like California these days, it just ultimately, even though you fight the good fight and pour yourself into it, at the end of the day, it's futile. And at some point, people give up and say, OK, I want to go shape a community and a place that wants me, that shares my values. You've done that in Florida. You mentioned DeSantis. I was reading part of a story earlier today. He won roughly 600,000 more votes than he did four years ago. He barely won by less than half a percentage point in 2018. And then, of course, won re-election by nearly 20 percentage points in Florida. That's not an accident. That is an incredibly impressive, really unheard of accomplishment. Like eight points is a blowout in Florida. Nineteen and a half points is just something that doesn't happen. But then it did. And this story was talking about how DeSantis really, of course, has extreme passion and loyalty among the Republican base in Florida, which has grown on his watch. Again, not coincidentally. He won independence handily. But he also won over what they're calling DeSantis Democrats as well, maybe people who left other places who didn't necessarily change their voter identification registration to the other party, but came to Florida and decided to vote for him. And maybe some folks who were already living in Florida who are Democrats who voted for him. I mean, he won Palm Beach County. You don't do that without winning some Democrats over how do you see that playing out? How did he pull that off? Not just like an impressive improvement, but something that is startlingly attention grabbing. Yeah. Well, first, I'll tell you a funny story, because I did an event with Governor DeSantis on June 1st in Orlando. So the home of Disney at the height of the you know nonsensical, quote unquote, don't say gay thing. We did an event together and we were sitting in the green room, about the two of us for about 10 minutes. And, and mostly, honestly, he wanted to talk about baseball. He wasn't really talking politics or anything. And I said to him, I said, Governor, you know, you might think I'm nuts. 
but I think you're going to win by 15 points. And he laughed in my face. He said, no, 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 seven, seven. So that's to your point of eight points would have been a blowout. And he was thinking seven and he gets this thing to 20 shows you that even for him who had, you know, who is invested in this state, you know, more than anybody and knows this state backwards and forwards and was born here and grew up here. I mean, even he didn't expect the landslide that we got. And I think there's several factors that you're mentioning there. You know, you get this influx of people who fled places and then realize, boy, I better vote red or at least vote for DeSantis. And then of course the way, the DeSantis wave helped Rubio, who, you know, basically everyone thought was going to win anyway, but he won in a crazy landslide. So there was a lot of things there. But I think the key part is what you're referring to as these DeSantis Democrats, these, you know, really moderate, what we used to call blue dog Democrats, who could find someone in the Democrat Party that believed in some level, perhaps, of limited government, that thought that the government was not supposed to do absolutely everything. Uh, those people used to exist. They don't really exist anymore. Uh, you know, this would be a sort of JFK Democrat, or as uh, I'm originally from New York, this would be a Daniel Patrick Moynihan Democrat or an Ed Koch Democrat. They don't exist anymore in terms of uh, that we don't have politicians like that that are on the Democrat side, but they exist as human beings. And I would say there's an awful lot of them down here in Florida, because let's not forget, you know, an awful lot of Floridians, the, the snowbirds, we have people that come down here part-time. A lot of them decided to come down here full-time because they couldn't take it in New York anymore. And a lot of them are of a certain age where they were sane Democrats. So they're now realizing, boy, a sane Democrat of, say, 1996 is actually a moderate Republican of 2022. And that's exactly what DeSantis is. And he's also a family man, and, and he's a good, decent person. And, you know, he doesn't want to rule your life. He wants to set up the conditions for freedom. And I think if we can just keep making people understand that, I think this meme of the DeSantis Democrat will keep growing and growing. And that might be the, you know, there's not a lot of uh, uh, people that can move one way or the other politically. But a, a DeSantis Democrat, that, that works and that could be very important going forward. Well, he won five or six percent of Democrats in Florida, self-identified Democrats. He won independence by eight or nine points on a night where a lot of Republicans didn't do that well among independents, especially at the federal level. He won them, as I said, pretty handily. And then not only did he crush it among Republicans, he brought a lot more people into the Republican Party. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people signing up as Republicans in that state en route to this Epic victory. I mean, you look through it. He won everyone 30 years older or beyond, right, 30 plus. He won Hispanics by 18 points. He even garnered 13 percent of the black vote, a higher percentage of black men in Florida. Just an interesting coalition. That's how you get to a 19, 20 point victory in a state like Florida, which brings me to an interesting question from your perspective on 2024, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Let's get to that as soon as we come back. Dave Rubin, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back on The Guy Benson Show with Dave Rubin. And Dave, you live in Florida now. You love Ron DeSantis. You've been a Trump supporter. Everyone's looking now ahead to 2024. There's a real indication that maybe they might go head-to-head in a big way. We've seen some sniping from Trump already on that front. What do you make of it? Well, I'll give you the broad answer, and then I'll give you the specific answer. The broad answer is that, you know, candidates that people like, which, you know, whether whether anyone listening to this likes Trump or not or likes DeSantis or not, you have to grant that they have 
They really have bases that are going to come out and support them. Having guys that people like having to go at it in the, in the you know, arena of ideas is good, I think, generally speaking, because it sharpens you, it makes you a better candidate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, look, DeSantis and Trump, in terms of policy, are, are very, very similar in terms of the things that they care about and the, the way they want America to look, et cetera, et cetera. I, I can tell you this, and I, I voted for Trump. I've interviewed Trump. I like and consider his, his kids friends. I think he's a decent man who actually has been treated probably more horribly by the mainstream media than anyone in the history of the world. The question really with Trump is he has a couple things that he has to figure out how to answer honestly. Number one is if he truly believes still that the election was stolen, and it's, it's absolutely his right to believe that. If he believes that, then, then it's hard to sell people on why you're running again, and unless you've done the work to ensure that they won't do it again, right? So if you really believe that, you got to get out there and say, hey, they stole it from me, but we've been on the ground in all of these states. Here's how we're going to ensure they don't do it again. Otherwise, the candidacy doesn't make a ton of sense. I think the other problem that Trump has is that we sort of know – what his top floor is at this point. You know, there, he can't bring in a ton of new people who are going to suddenly be like, boy, I, I didn't know that much about Donald Trump. I really do like him suddenly. But we do know that his, his floor could really fall out. A certain amount of people that are kind of over the games when he, when he said that Ron DeSantis line, which fell really flat, a lot of people were pissed at him because it was like, man, if you're going to go after DeSantis, which is your right, then pick a reason to do it, not because you're just name calling. Uh, and then the other problem that he has is that – so you're not going to get a ton of new voters. The other problem that he has basically is that he's in a lot of trouble. Like, So there's so many distractions around him that can he organize? Can he get the right people to staff and the rest of it? So he has to figure out those things. Uh, but I will say at the same time, I don't – I have truly, truly no idea – this is planning on running. I, again, I know he loves this state, and that's where he's focused. Um, I think that he he makes the most formidable candidate, partly because of what you said before about the DeSantis Democrat. We know he can create a new coalition. He strikes me as a Reagan-esque figure. He doesn't make mistakes. Um, you know, he's governing here in an incredibly competent way incredibly competent way. It is not easy to go against Disney and win, but he did it. He picks his fights properly. He doesn't have many downsides, but he has an awful lot of upsides. And all of that being said, if the, you know, I would hope that they could do some of this on the DL and have a lunch at Mar-a-Lago and discuss what they want to do. And, and maybe there's a way they can even team up through some of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, politics is a messy game and, and we shall see what happens. Dave Rubin, lastly, you're no stranger to battles with big tech, suppression of content and that sort of thing. We have about a minute or two left. Just your overall thoughts on this really saga involving Twitter, Elon Musk. What's he up to? What are you seeing here? Oh, uh, look, guys, this is the story. This is bigger than any political story. Who said what? When did they say it? Look, we are now finding out through these Twitter files what many of us long suspected, that the government was directly influencing big tech when it came to speech, whether it was suppressing the Hunter Biden story 
or whether it was suspending people on Twitter because they went against the narrative on COVID. Now, what's interesting to me about it is if you watch the way the mainstream media is covering it, you might go, well, what is that story? Because ABC, NBC, and CBS are basically not covering it at all. What they are covering is somehow that the government should be going after Elon Musk for a whole series of issues. So, look, we have an interesting opportunity where the richest guy in the world, who's quite literally trying to send us to Mars, has taken a little time here and an awful lot of money to, to let us know that something is wrong within the system. And it will, be with, it will be on us to figure out what to do with that knowledge. But I'm sure, like you guys, I'm not surprised by any of this stuff, and I hope we can get more people – to understand the severity of it, the absolute truth, this is not up for debate, is that government agents, government bureaucrats were talking to Twitter employees about what people should be suspended, what information should be stifled and everything else. And we now know for sure that Twitter had the mechanisms to shadow ban and do these other, you know, algorithmic tricks and things. So there's, there's Which they did, and they were denying it. They denied for a long time that they did any of that. Now we know that, of course, they were doing it. And I think not only do the former executives at Twitter, some of them have real questions to answer, so do some officials at the FBI as well. And perhaps we'll get some of those answers next year as the Republicans take over the House. We'll be watching Dave Rubin. His show is The Rubin Report. At Rubin Report, you can follow him there. Dave, great to talk to you. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays to you and your husband and your family. Get some sleep. We'll talk soon. Merry Christmas, my friend. And uh, hopefully I get to see you in the free state of Florida in the new year. Would love that. We'll see you down there. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Thank you for listening. Earlier on the program today, Andy McCarthy was here talking about a number of legal-specific issues. Here's part of that conversation with Fox News contributor and longtime federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy. The U.S. Supreme Court temporarily postponing, perhaps, this Title 42 reversal. Now, we've been talking about a lot here on the show when it comes to immigration, illegal immigration, the border crisis. This Title 42 expiration is going to be a disaster whenever it happens. It might not happen tomorrow as scheduled based on what SCOTUS seemed to have done on some sort of non-substantive basis. This was more procedural. Can you just explain what happened? Well, this is complicated, Guy, because it involves two different litigations. There's one that's in front of uh, the Supreme Court now, which is the one that they – issued a basically they frozen things um for now and ordered the justice department to uh respond by i believe it's close of business today today yeah um yes um but here's the thing the there's two different litigations the first one involves the the these 24 states um who basically won a case in the sense that a federal judge in Louisiana um, said that Title 42 had to remain in place because the Biden administration had um, violated the Administrative Procedure Act uh, in rescinding it. So what happened is a a sort of a tactic that the Supreme Court uh, has referred to or Chief Justice Roberts has referred to in in other cases as uh, collective acquiescence. What happened was 
a, a sort of collusive lawsuit was then brought in the District of Columbia by illegal aliens who were claiming to have been their uh, their ability to seek asylum uh, was undermined by Title 42. And they negotiate, you know, they're bringing the suit. But on the other side of the suit is the Biden administration, which doesn't want to defend uh, Title 42. Uh, so they had a very sort of chummy um, litigation and they got in front of Judge uh, Emmett Sullivan, uh, who was also sympathetic. And he basically said, uh, there's no basis to continue Title 42 because there's no pandemic emergency anymore. So what the states are now complaining about is that by this kind of collusive lawsuit arrangement, um, the Biden administration is getting. When you say out collusive, of- Andy, just just so I'm understanding this correctly, the immigration activists who are almost certainly bankrolling the lawsuit from these illegal immigrants who say that they are having their ability to declare asylum or have that adjudicated, uh, you know, they're saying that they should not have Title 42 standing in their way. That's one side of the lawsuit. The other side of the lawsuit should be the federal government saying, no, this is okay. Here's why. But the Biden administration, for their political reasons, actually agrees on the sort of the, the underlying point here. So the two sides that are supposed to be going head to head in court, it's supposed to be adversarial. In reality, they actually agree. So they've sort of orchestrated this whole kind of legal performance or where they've they've choreographed this legal dance to get the outcome that they want. My full interview with Annie McCarthy available online for free on demand, part of our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's no charge every day after the show is over. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine and I have been watching a new show, not together, separately, very separately, and we have very separate ideas about the show, opinions, assessments of that show. We'll talk about it. We'll debate it as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is the website. Podcast is free every day. And so before the break, I teased that producer Christine and I, just by coincidence, both were watching the same show on Netflix. And we were talking about it on the planning call for the show. And it came up and I mentioned that Adam and I had watched it. She jumped in and said, oh, I've binged the whole thing. And literally at the exact same moment, we gave our opinion of the show, and it was exactly the opposite. Christine said, it's so good. And I said correctly, it is not good. The show is The Recruit, streaming on Netflix. It's about a CIA lawyer, like a brand-new CIA lawyer who stumbles into this massive international intrigue. And on paper, theoretically, this is right up my alley. A spy show set all over the world, lots of action. I love this type of thing. I'm sad to say, and I regret to inform you, that I do not love The Recruit. The Recruit cannot figure out whether or not it's an action show trying to portray a life of espionage and spying and intelligence work 
in a serious way or if it's a comedy or if it's gritty, even gruesome at times, it kind of bounces around. And to me, it never really has a tone that consistently makes sense. I don't need it to be super serious, although I will say for this type of thing, this type of show, movie or TV series, I like realisticness. I like grittiness. For example, I'm watching a show right now called Slow Horses on Apple TV, which is about British MI5, which is their domestic security service and intelligence service. And it has a humorous component. Gary Oldman's character is just fantastic. His insults are amazing. But ultimately, it's a serious show. And you can suspend disbelief here or there. And you can occasionally say, like, all right, maybe there's a plot hole here. or That person isn't acting the way that they probably would or should. But I'm willing to get past that. Slow Horses, overall, I would recommend. Whereas The Recruit is so ludicrously unrealistic that I just can't get past it. I can't get lost in the show. I can't really enjoy the show. It has its moments, and they've got a big budget, so there's a bunch of shoot 'em up bang-bang stuff, and, I mean, that's all fine. But ultimately, I don't know that much about the intelligence community and how the practitioners of intelligence operate, but I've read enough good spy novels. I mean, the OG and greatest of all time is John Le Carre, and I've read a bunch of his stuff. Of course, Brad Thor, our friend, Daniel Silva. I'm a connoisseur of this type of thing, this genre. I can get a sense of what is at least plausibly realistic versus what is not. And I would imagine anyone who actually works even attached to the intelligence world would watch this show and want to pull their hair out at how preposterous it is. So from the giant, unrealistic flapping red flags all over the place and just really dumb, small lack of attention to detail that makes it even less believable in completely frivolous ways. Like that stuff bothers me as a viewer. Maybe some viewers, they just sort of like watch the whole thing as brain candy. They don't really care. They don't pay attention to this. But if I'm trying to transport myself into like a spy versus spy type situation. If there are big plot holes and small details that are just bungled in a way that it just takes me out of the moment, then I can't really enjoy it. So we did watch the whole thing. I was not sure I was going to continue watching it after our first several episodes But Adam asked me to. We were actually sort of enjoying making fun of it together, especially with some friends in a group text. Then I knew that Christine loved the show and had already finished it. And I said, okay, I'll use this as show prep and I'll finish the show. So we finished it last night. It's eight episodes. Those are eight hours I'm not getting back. And I can tell you right now, season two, if they have one, is not something I'm going to watch. Like they tried to set up a big cliffhanger which I predicted, by the way, at the very end. And I just care so little about where the show is going that I will not watch season two of The Recruit. And I am not here to tell you that you should invest eight of your precious hours in the show. Whereas producer Christine, who has excellent taste, as you know, in everything, 
She loves the show. It's like her favorite show of all time. Now she wants to be a spy, she says, hoping that we'll forget that she was a trained spy. She knows what real spying is like, indoctrinated as a KGB operative many decades ago. That's a separate side note and a backstory and an inside joke that perhaps you can delve into in the archives of the podcast if you'd like to. But she is now, she says, suspicious of everyone around her. She thinks her apartment building is filled with foreign spies. And now she's thinking about leaving talk radio altogether and again throwing her hat into the ring of international espionage. And if there's anyone who's cool and calm and collected and worldly enough to be a successful spy, it's producer Christine, which is why she loves the recruit, perhaps the least realistic spy show I've ever seen in my life. Christine, uh, please give us your endorsement of this show. Wow, God. <laughs> um, it definitely, because I do have a love of international espionage, so definitely, you know, piqued my interest when I saw it on Netflix and I watched the trailer. I loved it. What I'm going to say to you is I think you were looking for way too much in this. You were probably looking more for like a Homeland type thing, correct? Did you like Homeland? I liked some seasons of Homeland. Other seasons were just too ridiculous. So... I watched the first few seasons and I liked it. Same thing. I just, I, I got lost. I'm sure you're not surprised. Um, so what I think about like this season is like, one, season one of Homeland loved was it, so loved good. It. Yes. All right. Totally. So we agree on that. Mm-hmm. What I think I liked about this was they didn't go too far into the violence where like I had to turn away or I couldn't watch or I got scared. They didn't have anything so traumatic that like I was going to like not be able to sleep and they didn't have anything too sexual because I'm very prudish with that. I don't like that stuff on TV. So like, I think it was so in the middle, but I think it was good for, they, they were trying to bring people like me in, but I think at the same time they were trying to bring people like say Bobby, who we could watch this together. He might laugh about it. He did. And then he really didn't watch that much of it with me. But I think that was the goal here was to kind of like bring couples together to watch it. I think they nailed it. Owen Hendricks, the, the main character is what a cutie cute. He just kept me and I just loved his quirkiness about him and the relationship he had with Max I don't want to ruin too much, but the ending was so shocking to me. Like, I legit gasped. I couldn't believe it. And I just cannot wait for a season two. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it's getting a great rating. And a lot of the articles that I put on your rundown for you to read, um, they they said it was it was a hit. Yeah, so some of the reviews that I've seen have been much less kind. They think that the main character is miscast, which I actually agree with. I don't really love the character. He seems perfectly fine. I know nothing about this guy. Um, I'm not even sure I agree with your assessment of cutie cute, but that's, you know, that's much more subjective. The big twist at the end, I think we started to figure out two episodes earlier when that other character was first introduced. I'll just put it that way. And the thing is, like, I'm fine with something that is silly and spy, like... What's that series of movies? There's now been, I think, two or three of them. The Kingsman, right, which is just ridiculous. They lean all in on the ridiculous in that show, whereas this one tries to have it both ways and I think doesn't really achieve either one that well. And then the other thing is just like I know this is going to make you roll your eyes, 
But there were just a few little things where, like, someone gets a business card and then dials a phone number. And they dial the number way too fast in a way that no one would be able to do. It's not enough digits that they dial for it to be a valid phone call. And they just sort of move on. It's like, can't you just make that slightly more realistic? At one point, there's a scene where there's sports on in the background. And the fake sports broadcasting in the background is just so terribly unrealistic and ridiculous that it just, like, sticks out like a sore thumb. It's like a giant red flag. This isn't real. What about the character who who wants to be a political pundit and is built like a multi-million dollar TV studio in her house just to practice in front of no one and doesn't actually go on television? That, like, is – like, I know how much all that costs because we have one at the house much less nice than hers. That was crazy to me. There's a scene, Christine, at a bar. which This is like an area where you're an expert. Someone goes to the bar, orders a cocktail – And the bartender just hands them an elaborate cocktail two seconds later, which is not how it works. Just like little things like that drive me crazy in a show where I'm already not really loving it for other reasons. That just puts me over the edge as becoming hostile. And then just like some of the some of the developments. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but like, you know, that doing X, Y or Z is a terrible decision and a very dumb idea. And you're like, does this lawyer at the CIA have any training whatsoever in, like, basic security practices? And the answer, I guess, for the plot is no, but that's also just not how it works. I can't get past it. I'm sorry. I understand why it's sort of a fun little romp for a lot of people. I just can't do it based on my tastes. Can I just say one last thing? Um, you I did. I did sympathize very much with the main character Owen. There's one scene. I don't want to give a whole bunch away, but there's one scene where he's in a different country, and they, he was trying to get to a bank to get some money out of an account, and he completely messed up the time difference of when he needed to be there. I too, Guy Benson, have once messed up a international interview for you with yeah, the time I do difference. That. And yeah, but that I, wasn't. I, that was like relatively low stakes compared to this screw up and that wasn't even his worst screw up like we can talk off the air about some of the more absurd things that happened in the show but the bottom line is i'm a no christine's a yes dan has now started watching this show with his girlfriend all right dan i guess you can break the tie so I went into it. I usually agree with Guy on movies and shows. Like, we have the same similar style that we like. Like, I love Slow Horses and the Jack Ryan series and all that. Love them. I hate to say it, but I'm agreeing with Christine. <laughs> I like it. I like it. It is ridiculous. It's goofy. I mean, there are so many inconsistencies that are so stupid. Like, you can't just go to Yemen just to go to Yemen at a black site. <laughs> Like, come on. Yeah, like he flew yeah. he flew commercial to Yemen <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> with no guidance from the CIA as a CIA employee. Like, come yeah. on. It's so ridiculous, but it is fun. We like it. I'll finish the season. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, just wait, Dan. It gets so much better. I'll finish it. I probably will watch a season two, but I'm going back to Slow Horses after that. Well, I mean, Slow Horses, I'm waiting. What is it? Thursday is the next episode. That is a good show. This yep. is something else. Now Wyatt's going to have to watch this. Because he's cracking up over there. I don't even know if this is his genre. I don't know if why it would make it through a single episode of this, to be honest. But you be the judge. I'm not going to tell you that you should never watch it. I'm just telling you I'm not going to watch season two. 
It's just not going to happen. But I hope you do tune in for a new edition of The Guy Benson Show tomorrow. Same time, same place here on the radio. GuyBensonShow.com for the podcast every day. With that, have a great night. We will talk to you soon. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.